Today's Bible reading is taken from the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 9 to 20. Revelation is the last book in the Bible, and you can also follow it on the screen. Revelation, chapter 1, verse 9. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that ours in Jesus was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, which said, Write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstand, lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet, and with the golden shafts around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write def therefore what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning again, everyone. And it's lovely to be back in Burwood. I live in Newcastle, but I was down here uh, every week for my studies, of course, and it's great to be back. I, I, I miss Burwood. Uh, I'd like to say thank you to Reverend David and the elders for inviting me. And I'd also like to take this opportunity to publicly thank you, David, as one of the older men, thanks from the younger men for being uh, an inspiration in your enthusiasm and perseverance. We appreciate it, so, so thank you very much. This morning we have before us the, chap the first chapter of Revelation, verses 9 to 20, and this is John's vision of Christ, so let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this portion of your word. We thank you for this vision which you gave to John. We pray that you'll help us to see it in our mind's eyes, to see it clearly, to come to know you in a deeper way, and to come to know ourselves as well in the way we ought. We thank you for your mercy. We depend on it. And all of this 
All that we do now, we do in dependence of you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in, Re- in the first chapter of Revelation, we find, where do we find ourselves? John here is exiled on an island. It's Patmos there in the, in the Mediterranean somewhere. He's exiled, and, uh, and it's a Sunday. It says it's the Lord's Day. It's a Sunday, so he's, perhaps he's worshipping. It says he's in the spirit, and he hears a loud voice. That's the first thing, and then he turns around to look at this voice. So he hears the voice which says something, and his first reaction is to turn around and look. And what he sees and what he hears is a vision of Christ. And twice during this vision, John is told to write down what he sees. There in verse 11, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches. And then at the end of our passage, again in verse 19, again there's the reminder, therefore, write what you have seen, what is and what will take place after this. So he's told to write it down. And the whole book of Revelation is part of this vision that he writes down. But it happens in three parts. Revelation has three parts. There's this first chapter. Then there's chapters 2 and 3, which are the letters to the churches. And then there's from chapter 4 to the end, which is an elaborate, ongoing vision. Now, these three parts are perhaps echoed here in verse 19. Write what you have seen, what is, and what will take place after this. In chapter two, chapters 2 to 3, the vision of Christ, he says, he actually tells John what to write down. And just to notice these markers, again, from verse chapter 4 onwards, it says, after this I looked. He continued to look, he continued to see. But here in chapter 1, it's the vision of Christ. This is the opening of the book, and really it drives the rest of the book. John sees this vision and he is, he is terrified. We have that reaction written down. But he is comforted. He is terrified but comforted. So he is afraid when he sees this vision. And this idea of us being afraid at the vision of Christ might seem strange to us. Maybe it actually even seems like it shouldn't be that way. We, we don't think of Christ that way. But here we have the word of the Lord. John sees him, and he's afraid. And we'll look at this. For us, we might become so familiar with Christ that perhaps we can become careless. Perhaps we lose this sense of fear that we should have. But on the other hand, if we don't hear his words of comfort, we might be left in this state of hopelessness. So we need both of those things. So that's what we're looking at. And we see, first of all, in this vision of Christ, that our Lord Jesus is the, is the ancient of, div, of days. He is divine. 
So the vision of Christ is described to us in verses 14 to 16, as we look at this. It's the vision of Christ. We see Christ, sometimes we see him as the baby in the manger. Uh, Or we read about, for example, in the Sermon on the Mount, we see him going around teaching. He has such wisdom. He, He heals. We have these pictures of our Lord from the New Testament. We even read of the ascended Christ in the end of Matthew, for example. But here, in our passage this morning, we see Christ in overwhelming glory. And six features of this vision are described. His hair, his eyes, his feet, his voice, his mouth, and then finally, his face. Now, let's just put one thing straight. This vision is not really what Christ looks like. It's not a description of him. It's not a picture of him. It's not a photograph. It's not what he looks like, but it is what he is like. So let's look at these verses, 14 to 16. The hair of his head was white as wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a fiery flame. His feet were like fine bronze, as it is fired in a furnace. And his voice, like the sound of cascading waters. He had seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp double-edged sword came from his mouth. And his face was shining like the sun at full strength. So why are we given this description? What John sees here, it ties into the full stream of prophecy. And really, in many ways, this is the climactic vision of our Lord. This is the climax of prophecy about God. So I'll read from two two, uh, visions from the Old Testament, from Daniel chapter 7 and Ezekiel chapter 43. I'll, I'll tell you what I'm reading from. Feel free to just listen if you like. And the idea here is just notice the the similarities. So first of all, Daniel chapter 7, and I'll read verses 9 to 10. This is the vision that Daniel had. As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was convened, and the books were opened. So what Daniel saw was, he he also saw this vision And there he saw the vision of the Ancient of Days. In that vision, one like a son of man is led before the Ancient of Days. But in Revelation 1, Jesus our Lord in this vision is described with the same majesty and honor. The whiteness of his hair, the dazzling, the fire. So Christ our Lord is the divine ancient of days. John is seeing the similarities here. That's the first one. And I also would like to read from Ezekiel 43. 
And again, just a few verses there at the beginning. So this is Ezekiel's vision. Again, just notice the similarities. He led me to the gate, the one that faces east. This is verse 1. And I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice sounded like the roar of a huge torrent. And the earth shone with his glory. The vision I saw was like the one I had seen when he came to destroy the city. And like the one I had seen by the Chebar Canal, I fell face down. Ezekiel had seen this vision of God and he was overwhelmed. He fell face down. But here in Revelation, in the first chapter, John sees this vision of Christ. Christ, the divine ancient of days, our Lord. The images are meant to evoke feelings. Again, it's not a picture of what he looks like. One minister said to our students uh, years ago, I, I, I can't remember when, but he said, definitely do not preach on uh, Revelation for the first 10 years of your ministry. And there's definitely some wisdom in that. Uh, I think that this part is easier than the later parts. So uh, it's not that I'm ignoring him. But there was another minister who, who actually said, children tend to uh, experience Revelation the best. They have the right mindset because they don't try and overthink everything and analyze everything in such technical precision. They just think it's like a picture book. Wow, look at the, the flames. Look at the rushing waters. You know, they, they experience it. Children read Revelation best, perhaps we could say. But we have these images, and they're for us, they, they're there to evoke feelings. He has white hair. What is that? Christ is ancient. He is serene. He is wise. He's his clothing, he's pure. His flaming eyes. Nothing is hidden from Jesus Christ our Lord. Uh, just a quick interruption to uh, going through these, these images here. In chapters 2 and 3, our, our Lord dictates the letters to write to each of the churches. In the letter to Thyatira, again, it begins with pointing out the eyes of Jesus, that they're full of like fire. And he's pointing out that the church there was thinking that they were getting away with their immoral, sinful practices. Well, John was to remind them, our Lord has eyes like fire. We do not get away with anything. And the scriptures are full of this. He sees us. He sees our hearts. We do not escape from his gaze. So we read here, his eyes are like flaming fire, like blazing flames. His feet, he has these amazing bronze feet. And what, what's, what does this evoke? He doesn't have feet of clay. You know, governments around the world and in our own nation, they, might, they seem strong, they seem ominous, but they have feet of clay ultimately. There's no earthly government, good or bad, which lasts. Daniel chapter 2, I won't go there, but of course there's the, Nebuchadnezzar has the image of the statue and part of it is the feet of, of partly of clay. That's what earthly governments are. Our Lord's feet, bronze, burnished bronze, everlasting. Nothing comes close. Jesus, our Lord, forever King of Kings. 
and his voice. We see his voice here in these verses, 14 to 16. Like rushing waters, one translation has like the roar of rushing waters. When Christ speaks, he doesn't uh, chip in his two cents worth. He doesn't make suggestions. When our Lord speaks, he declares his words like rushing waters. And there's this image of the sword in his mouth. You know, a soldier carries out his mission with his sword or his weapon, his gun or whatever it might be. But Christ our Lord, he speaks and he executes his mission. In the New Testament, of course, we read of the word of God as like a two-edged sword, powerful, penetrating, active. Here we have this image of Christ, the sword in his mouth, his word. And then finally, we see his face there in verse 16. His face was shining like the sun at full strength. And in many ways, this is the, the culmination or the climax of this vision. But everything we've seen so far, but at the end of the day, he is shining. He is brilliant. We can't look at the sun directly. And the sun powers everything. It warms the days. The sun is something that is so, we cannot approach it. So much greater than a human just in size and brilliance in every way. And Christ, his face, our Lord, it's, it's like the sun. We, we cannot even describe his glory. That's why this image is used. And Isaac Watts, great hymn writer, had this verse which I read to you. Join all the glorious names of wisdom, love, and power that ever mortals knew, that angels ever bore. All are too mean to speak his worth, too mean to set my Savior forth. All the words in the, in the dictionary could not come close to describing our Lord, but here we have this vision. He shines like the sun. That's the first thing. Christ our Lord is the divine ancient of days. But secondly... We read here that John falls down as if dead. And the second heading I have here is Christ is holy as God is holy. So let's look at verse 17, the first half. When I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Now frequently in the scriptures, we read of those who see Christ or see his angels and are struck with fear. I have a number of these references. I won't read all of them, but perhaps just one or two. I'll read from Joshua 5, and I'll I'll just read this from verses 13 to 15. When Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand, Joshua approached him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied. I have now come as commander of the Lord's army. Then Joshua bowed with his face to the ground in worship. Uh, Just leave it there. And perhaps 
perhaps just one more, Matthew chapter 17 and verse 6, I'll read. Again, this is when people in the Bible come face to face with our Lord or his angels. There's usually only one response. So this is the transfiguration. After six days, verse 1, Jesus took Peter, James, and his brother John and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. He was transfigured in front of them, and his face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as the light. Suddenly Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. Then Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. I will set up three shelters here, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was still speaking, suddenly a bright cloud covered them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell face down and were terrified. When people come face to face with God, so to speak, there's only usually this one reaction. Now, some of you might know Gary Miller. He's the principal of Queensland Theological Center. And I couldn't find this written down, but I, so just take it with a grain of salt. But I heard him saying once that he's Irish, by the way. He, 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 yeah, he's Irish. He's not an Aussie. He's an immigrant like myself. But he, he observed something about Australian culture, as perhaps outsiders can do best. And he said, Aussies can be sometimes so relaxed as to lose a sense of hierarchy and that sense of honor. Now, I know I've lived in Malaysia, and I know how you have to call people uncle and auntie. And uh, in, in my own culture in South Africa, uh, we, w- we would never refer to an older person by his or her first name. I would say uh, Pastor David or, or something like that. Uh, So I still struggle just even to use a first name for someone older than me. But there is this relaxed culture in in Australia sometimes where, where it's very even. And the point Gary Miller was making was that, sadly, sometimes this can spill over into our religious life, into how we pray, how we worship, how we think of God, perhaps even. Well, John isn't casual or relaxed when he comes face to face with this vision of Christ. And it's not a matter of cultural deference. It's not a cultural thing. It's not even just that he was afraid, but it's as if he died, as if he were dead. The presence of our Lord, that's what happens. We are not like him. He is not on our level. He's not one of us, so to speak, if you you follow what I'm saying. He's not just one of our friends uh, in in that sense, if you follow what I'm saying. And this matches what we know from the Old Testament. For example, in Exodus 33, we read that Moses, God says to Moses, you would die if you saw me directly. We read from Exodus 30 before, there are rules as to how we worship God. He dictates the terms by which we approach him. He tells us, do this in this way. I am holy. It's the same thing with Jesus in this vision here. And one of the most powerful 
most poignant moments in Scripture is in Exodus 3. And if you'll allow me to read this, I'll read verses 3 to 5. This is Moses and the burning bush. I'll just read, I'll read from verse 1. Meanwhile, Moses was shepherding the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. He led the flock to the far side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire within a bush. As Moses looked, he saw that the bush was on fire but was not consumed. So Moses thought, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight. Why isn't the bush burning up? When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called out to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, here I am, he answered. Do not come closer, he said. Remove the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he continued, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. God's holiness hasn't changed in the New Testament. It's not a different God in Exodus and a different God in Revelation. Christ our Lord is holy as God is holy. And John experiences that here in verse 17. So that's the second point, that Christ is holy as God is is holy. And then finally what we see here is that yet he is comforted. John is comforted by Jesus our Lord and drawn near to him. And for us it's the same. So we'll see that. So John, here he is. He's as if dead on the ground. And if this is where... It ended, it would be a hopeless ending. If this is what the Christian story was, uh, we wouldn't be joyful. It would be awful. But it's not where the Christian story ends. Here we see a, a moment of great tenderness. The Christ in this, of this vision, he reaches out his right hand and he touches John. Perhaps he puts his hand on John's shoulder and he says two words, fear not. The tenderness in this moment is striking. We have this glorious vision. We have overwhelming awe and yet we have a hand on the shoulder. Fear not. And then in the vision our Lord, he, he makes four statements about himself. On, uh, and these, these are meant to comfort him. They're not meant to make him more afraid. Because reading through these, we might think, wow, this makes me even more worried. It's such a amazing statements. But, you know, it's meant to comfort John. And in the first place, he's identifying himself. John knows Jesus. He knows the life of Jesus. He knows the death and the resurrection, the ascension He knows the promises. He knows of salvation in Christ by grace. And Jesus is comforting him by saying, I am 
Jesus, but he's also doing more than that. When he says, I am the first and the last and so on, he is giving the proof that he is able to comfort. He is giving the reason for why John should be comforted. When he came face to face with Christ, he realized his desperate need. And here Christ is declaring to him his salvation. So let's look at these terms as we come to the close of this passage. Christ is the first and the last. He says, don't be afraid, I am the first and the last. There in the second half of verse 17. He is the beginning and the end. He is everything. He is the creator and he is the end and the purpose of all things. All things come from him. All things go to him. We've heard the saying that all roads lead to Rome. But really, all roads and everything everywhere, it leads to Christ and his glory. I, won't, I, will, I will not turn there for the sake of uh, just staying right here right now. But if you would like to, you can look at Colossians 1. Uh, Later, just take note, Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20. Everything is through him, for him. That is the one who comforts John. It's not someone who is uncertain or incapable of salvation. It's the, the first and the last who says, fear not. And he says, I am the living one. Start of verse 18. He expands on it. I was dead, but look, I am alive forever and ever. You and I are alive right now. But Christ is alive in a different way here in this vision. He is the living one. You could say he is life itself. And this is comforting to John. Because the implication is, John also, in Christ, has this life. And you and I, being united with Christ, are a part of this eternal life, the living one. That's why Christ says he has the keys to death and Hades there. It's not a threat. It's not to scare him more. He's saying, I have overcome. I'm victorious. I have the keys. I can unlock my people. I can release my people. He's he's saying this to John. And he's saying, write it down for the church. And you and I are hearing this. Jesus, our Lord, he comforts us. Our sin is defeated by Christ. And death is defeated by Christ. This is a declaration right at the start of the book of ultimate victory. A doctor might say to you or I, don't be afraid. If we sadly find ourselves in the doctor's office, uh, perhaps for terminal illness, the doctor can say to us the words, don't be afraid. And this is comforting to an extent, of course it is. A friend or a loved one 
can give us a hug. And we all need this, we all want this, and it's good to do. And let us all do this for each other all the time. It's comforting. But in the face of our sin and of the condition of this life, it, it, it only goes so far. There might be a great earthly leader to say that he will come to rescue us, to tackle our problems head on. And of course, we pray for good earthly leaders. It's a blessing. But even the best of them, again, they can only do so much and so often they fall short. But in Christ, our Lord, the first and the last, we have true comfort in all these things. He looks at us and he says, fear not. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I'm victorious. And he puts his hand on our shoulders and he says, I am your Lord. Have faith in me. And I pray that is what we all do as a church. We rest in Christ. And having read through this vision, we know our Lord is glorious. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He is like the sun. And yet he comforts us. So just to, to conclude, I thought the words in, in the first song were lovely. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me thence depart. So that's our Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your love, your closeness to us, your glory. We praise you for your glory. We thank you that you do not compromise with sin but that you overcome it even through your own death and resurrection. We honor you and we worship you, and we pray humbly that you continue to strengthen us. All these things we pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen.